this is good because that will lead into the next okay, trauma there we thing go. too. So, yes. okay, good. Okay, good, good, good. Let's keep this trauma okay. train moving. Let's keep the trauma train moving because we're on No, now. trains don't beep. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> beep, beep. Here comes the train. Here that comes. That should be a meme. Oh my gosh, yeah. that should be a meme. I'm Nora McNerney, and this is Terrible Thanks for Asking. And that was me talking with today's guest, Carrie, about one of our mutual favorite topics, trauma. And if you haven't been traumatized yet, I want you to just sit tight and know that it is coming. It's coming for you, baby. And if you have been traumatized, you know that sometimes that's how you get through it. You get kind of weird, you make some weird jokes, and then when you're with another person who gets it, it just energizes you. And today's guest has a really happy voice. She has good energy, and she also has a rough story. And like a lot of people, Carrie's story starts before she and her sister Cassie even exist, when their parents have their first daughter, Haley. When Haley was born, my mom had a lot of health issues and she was life-flighted to the Denver hospital. Haley was born. She died the next day. She died in my dad's arms. It was really traumatic for them. And one of those like life-altering experiences Haley's short life had a long-term impact on Carrie's parents and the children they hadn't even had yet. It's a stunning and staggering loss that propels them into realizing that they want a different kind of life from the one that they had as kids. That they want to give their future kids the kind of childhood they didn't have. They want to escape their judgmental, patriarchal small-town life in Colorado. They want a life without limits for their kids. Less scrutiny and disapproval, more possibility and praise. So when I look at Haley and the experience with Haley and how that shaped mom and dad, it was almost a sense of empowerment because mom and dad grew up in a world where they really were kind of in their own way. I don't want to say oppressed by any means, but they had this experience where there was a set expectation. For example, my mom was raised in a very, you know, sexist world. Her expectation was to just become a mom, become a housewife, cook the meals and kind of settle down. And she wanted more for her life. She wanted an education. She wanted, you know, to make change in the world. And I think that seeing how they reacted to Haley's birth and changed through that experience and then how that influenced our upbringing and the way that they decided to take on raising us was really empowering for me and Cassie and shaped who we were. And I think that that says a lot to them as parents and speaks a lot to their sense of self and their confidence because it was hard. It was hard leaving a community that they grew up in that was very, very rural and small town and pretty judgmental community still is. And they decided to do something different. And it's hard to do something different. It's hard to do something different, but Carrie's parents do it. They're a really interesting pair. Her dad is sciency and her mom is deep into new age stuff. She's the perfect combination of funny and loving and edgy and unexpected. She's the kind of mom who leads a guided meditation for her little girls. We lay down in bed and mom's talking us through this meditation and it's just, you know, beautiful. And it goes on a long time. I mean, a long time, like 
we're talking probably 15 minutes, starting to push 20 minutes. And she's talking about an ocean and how, you know, the ocean waves are crashing against the rocks and the, you see the whales jump up out of the ocean. And she's just describing in great detail. And Cassie and I, at this point, are so into it. Like we have our eyes closed. We're quiet, silent. There's a pelican that goes flying above our heads. And then she screams at the top of her lungs that the pelican took a big dump on Cassie and I, and she just yells it. And she just, I mean, it was like seamless. It was seamless. And I can like remember laying there and we were so into this meditation and Cassie and I just jolted, like our eyes just like flew open and we just started like scream laughing and mom was laughing. And that's like mom in a nutshell, like just such a good example of like, she was so like new age and like loving and kind and embraced everyone. And yet she always had this edge that she would do something when you least expected it. And I loved that about her. I loved that about her. So everybody was telling my mom, Hey, send Carrie to school. It's time. Send her to school. And so mom sent me to school and she watched mom was one of those moms that was always there, but she was like, not a helicopter mom. She was like always in the background watching and she'd be there if something turned South, but she was never like helicoptery, you know? And she was watching when she sent me to preschool or daycare or whatever it was the first time. And she watched as I went in and I just cried and cried and cried. And she talked about watching some teacher, the daycare person, um, disciplining me in a way that mom didn't uh, agree with. And so mom got out of the car and she stormed in and she pulled me out and she said, we're not doing this shit. (laughs) And that started our homeschool journey. And then I never went back to school until I was 13. And, you know, our homeschooling wasn't like fanatical extremist, you know, religious homeschooling. It was like performing arts and out at the nature center, we would go to the bird refuge. We would go to, you know, visit friends. We would volunteer all the time. Like our homeschooling experience was just one giant party. And then mom would go home and to get her nap in, she would let Cassie and I play Barbies together five hours a day. And honestly, if that isn't like the best version of school, I don't know what is because it was wonderful. At 13, Carrie leaves homeschool for charter school. So it was kind of like the school of wonderful misfits. And so I fit right in, in a lot of ways at the time. And Cassie did the same thing. She also went to a charter school. And both schools that we went to, you know who was the lunch lady? My mom. I don't remember seeing her, but she was always there. And if something went wrong, boom, she would be there in five seconds and she would pick me up and we would leave school and we would have, you know, an ice cream in our hands and be talking about it. Like she was always within reach, but never, you know, I don't know what the word is, like aggressively dominating the situation or in our space when we were trying to grow. Charter school life is a comfortable fit. Here, Carrie feels good about herself. She feels accepted. Like I was on the cheer team. (laughs) I was on the cheer team at our charter school, but the cheer team, there were no sports. So we just kind of like performed at assemblies. And then sometimes like, like maybe we would, you know, like perform at an event and we didn't really have outfits and we just kind of, it was just kind of like, I love this. You're like, we're literally just a team of cheer. Yeah. (laughs) No 
it was really uh, just for our own probably self-validation as 13 year olds like yeah we're cheerleaders so yeah yeah and we know this is cool after two years at that charter school it's time to move up to the big leagues we're talking public high school i remember though being like i was a cheerleader so just fyi like that was like my mentality Mm-hmm. And then I walked in and saw the real cheerleaders and I was just internally like, shit, <laughs> like, oh man, oh shit. Yep. And the football players, like there were so many cool people. I quickly, very quickly realized, you know, I think I, that's not my crowd anymore. I don't think that's where I fit. This is where Carrie's happy hippie childhood takes a brief detour. And it's also where we give a quick warning that we are about to talk about some serious mental health stuff. Because Carrie's first year in public school is rough. It's rough. She's teased a lot. She experiences a ton of bullying. At one point, she goes out with a guy for a day. They go out for one day. They go on one date. And she breaks up with him via text message because that's what you do in high school. And... When she does that, this guy and all of his friends make it their mission to make Carrie's life a living nightmare just because they can. It's a classic bullying scenario. And when you're a teenager, this kind of thing is crushing and it is consuming. And all of this completely destroys Carrie's mental health. Eventually, she's engaging in self-harm and suicidal ideation At one point, she attempts suicide, and Carrie's new age but no-nonsense mom responds in exactly the way you would hope a mom would in that situation. She took me out of school because she was like, you know what, basically like, fuck the system, man, (laughs) per usual. (laughs) Uh, And so she took me out of school for the last few months as I worked on basically my own recovery. And... Basically, she took some time off. I took time off. I was taking medication and we were working hard on that. And that was kind of like how I spent the end of junior year in my summer was just recovering from that and trying to figure out who I was. I'm very impressed with your mother because it's just so difficult as a parent not to be like, what? Like, I remember like telling my dad that I was depressed. He was like, what the fuck do you have to be depressed about? Are you fucking kidding me? Like, just like... (laughs) What? Yeah. When I was 17, I went to Vietnam and I was like, yeah, you know what? You're right. That's a good point. I'm not <laughs> depressed. I'm an idiot. I'm dumb. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Oh my gosh. I know. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Well, <sighs> when I look back, especially now after the things that I've experienced recently, I'm so impressed with my mom too. Eventually, Carrie is ready to go back to school. And now that she knows that the cheer team is not for her, She decides to try choir instead. I would go into choir every day and there was this guy that was just hot as hell. Like just the hottest. Again, high school, right? But like imagine your high school self and you walk into choir every day and there's this guy sitting there and he has like solid hair of just great like curls. I mean, it was just wonderful. And he was pretty lanky, But he also had an Aeropostale shirt on. So, you know, that's a good sign. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I would walk in and he would wave at me every day. And he was the smiliest, happiest human. And I just loved that. I was like, I love this person. He exudes great energy. Human sunshine, when you have just come out of the darkness, is there's nothing like it. And a person who's shining 
at you when you're like, oh yeah. Yeah. And when you're like, I just came out of darkness and now somebody's shining at me and I'm on a, a new vibe. So I would walk into acapella every day and he'd wave at me, but I had no clue who he was. And I'd wave back. And of course it's high school drums, you know, like it was, it was very cutesy. And then I started walking into acapella and he would be in the corner playing John Mayer, like daughters, which I actually hated at the time. The feminist in me really hated that song. (laughs) Um, But when he played it, it was okay. So I walked in the room and he'd be playing daughters in the corner and he'd be like mysteriously looking at me and like smiling. And just again, like senior year of high school, that was everything to me. I was like, this is my dream. Like, this is it. I can't think of something that would have thrilled me more. Right? Right? Mm -mm. I know. Mm -hmm. That's good enough for me. Yep. Even maybe today. When homecoming rolls around, Carrie's friends tell her they're going to set her up with a date. And Carrie wonders, is it, could it be, maybe, possibly the daughter's guy from choir class? It is. And his name, by the way, is Aaron. He's standing on one spot. His best friend at the time is standing next to him. And then there's another guy standing next to him. And they're lined up. And I'm being introduced to one of these people as my date. And they take me up to introduce me. And I just know I'm like smiling at Aaron the whole time. I'm like, yes, this is it. This is it. This is the moment. And they introduced me to his best friend who was like nothing like Aaron. It was the biggest disappointment and I tried not to show it. I tried to be really nice. Oh, it's so hard though. Oh, it's hard. Oh my gosh. I wanted to cry. It was, oh. it was torture. So I go to homecoming with this best friend at the time. And because they're best friends, we're still on the same homecoming date. Aaron, who's been still singing daughters to me from the corner of the choir room and waving at me and smiling every day I walk in is sitting across from me at a booth. We went to like a local like Mexican food place and he drank 10 Dr. Peppers while we were sitting there. And I remember his best friend at the time was like, dude, calm down, man. Like, why are you drinking so many Dr. Peppers? Aaron's going to be peeing for the rest of the night, but Carrie doesn't care. She's still smitten. We leave the Mexican food restaurant and we go to a gas station and I'm in one car with his best friend at the time and he's in another car with his date for homecoming. And his best friend at the time gets out and goes into the gas station and then Aaron and Aaron's date gets in and goes to the gas station. So I'm in one car and Aaron is in another car. I must pause here because I, at the time, was obsessed with Moulin Rouge and I was obsessed. I would listen to the soundtrack all the time. Of course, Aaron didn't know this. So I'm sitting in the car and I'm waiting for my date to come back out of the gas station. So is Aaron. And I suddenly hear your song from Moulin Rouge, the Moulin Rouge version, being sung to me. I mean, this is like major cringe, but also like, again, oh, high school no, stuff. I am, I am dying for yeah. this. This is <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> There's nothing. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. And then imagine the hair and he was dressed up for homecoming. He had the most amazing voice and he was in like our star choir. He always had the leads in musicals. Like he was a drama kid, choir kid too. And I hear the singing and I like, it sounds so dramatic, but I can remember slowly turning my head like what the actual fuck? <laughs> like this can't be happening. And 
I rolled down my window and I look over and he has his window rolled down and he's leaning out of it, smiling, singing your song to me. And I just like smiled and I was speechless. I was just like, this is my dream come true. He also doesn't give a fuck. I'm like, dude, yeah, you're a date, man. And what about your best friend who's taking me to homecoming? Like, we did not care. We were kind of assholes in that moment. So he's singing to me. Then Aaron's best friend walks out of the gas station, gets in the car, and all I hear him say is, fucking Aaron. And he rolls up my window, and we take off. (laughs) And that was that. And that was Carrie's introduction to Aaron, the boy who would become the man that Carrie would one day marry. Time for a break. Carrie and Aaron just had a moment at their senior homecoming, despite the fact that they were technically on dates with other people. The next Monday at school, Aaron asked Carrie if she likes his friend, the one that she sort of went to homecoming with. And I was like, no. (laughs) And then he was like, great. And then he just walked away. And I was like, man, I love this guy. (laughs) That's it. That's all the information he needed. She didn't like his friend, so he had a shot. And after that, it's typical high school stuff. They exchange phone numbers. They talk on the phone every night for hours and hours. Aaron plays guitar and sings for Carrie over the phone until she falls asleep. It's basically the stuff of every late 90s, early aughts teenage rom-com, minus all of the misogyny, um, you know, uh, homophobia, transphobia, uh, racism. Those late 90s, early aughts teenage rom-coms, they do not stand the test of time Do not watch them with your children. It is very jarring. But the point is, Carrie is head over heels, the way any high school senior would be. I was never raised, ever, 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 with the idea that, like, I needed to get married as part of my identity or that I needed to, like, have a partner or a man or, you know, if anything, I was like probably not even realizing at the time this budding feminist of like, I don't need a man. I I had this great plan of becoming a paleontologist and traveling the world with my dogs. Like that's kind of what my plan was. And then Aaron came along. And so I remember telling my mom, my mom always joked about this one day that I met a boy and my mom was like, you met a boy like you? <laughs> because I was just so like not in the realm of like, you? I am an independent Like you personally woman. or did you meet him for someone else? Yeah, like you, exactly. you met him in real life or like you watched him from a distance? Which, yeah. Which one? No, exactly. And I think just mom knowing me and like and just me being me, she was like, "You are we sure? Are we sure about this? Aaron's upbringing was very, very different from Carrie's. Carrie's was filled with adventures and love and laughter and silliness And Aaron grew up in a complicated household. It was very religious. He had close to a dozen siblings. And because of his childhood, Aaron relates a lot to Carrie's parents. He grew up in a rural kind of small town area. And Aaron just became enmeshed with my mom and dad. He was my dad's best friend. And my mom loved Aaron more than Cassie and I. Like Cassie and I joke about it, but truly my mom gave a presentation one time and she introduced Aaron and then skipped over me and Cassie. Like that's how much mom loved Aaron. (laughs) And 
So when it comes to like our family differences, Aaron related to my parents and their life experience in a way that I think like, I don't even know if Cassie and I quite understand. And I think that he and my mom shared a lot of experiences and stories together that they just related to on a deeper level. And his family dynamics for him became very complicated. You know, and this is something where I kind of just speak from his experience and knowing how he felt and what I was seeing from my end. But simply because like, one, he was spending a lot of time with us, but also because Aaron was experiencing a growth and a path that I think was something that his family and his upbringing didn't expect of him. Aaron, for a long time, had felt like his religious upbringing wasn't truth for him anymore. And he was seeing a lot of discrepancies and problematic things within like the culture and the religion itself. And he was having a hard time sort of like crossing that bridge and sticking with that for him. So Aaron quickly became very enmeshed in my family and very close to my mom and very close to my dad. My dad and Aaron would play music together all the time. They would talk astronomy and science and they just shared a lot. And really, as Aaron grew as an adult, in a lot of ways, my parents became almost like his emotional adult parents, especially as he sort of started to grow apart from his family that he was close to as a child. There was one day in particular, Nora, I came home from work and I walked in and mom was at her computer. She didn't even look at me. And she was like, you can sleep in the chair tonight. And I was like, why? And she said, Aaron had a hard day at home. He's in your bed. You can sleep in the chair. And that just kind of speaks to like, I think mom and Aaron's relationship, how much my family loved Aaron. And then on top of that, the experiences Aaron was having in his own home that sort of like, you know, impacted him in a way that he felt like he needed to escape. He needed to be somewhere else. Things with Carrie and Aaron get serious very quickly. And people love to shit on young love. I do it sometimes. I get it. But sometimes you meet someone when you're a kid and you're lucky enough that it really is your person, a person you can grow up with, grow alongside of, Sometimes you're just that lucky. My friend Gia is just that lucky. Carrie and Aaron were just that lucky. And anyone who dated me when I was under the age of 27 is lucky they didn't end up with me. Seriously. But Aaron and Carrie are different. Aaron and Carrie make sense. And so they do something that would seem not sensible to a lot of us. And so I just remember saying to Aaron one day, like, hey, I'm going to go to college. Do you think we should probably just get married if you want to go with me? (laughs) And then he was like, yeah, probably. That's a good idea. I'd like to go. And I was like, cool. And then we were just like, let's just get married then. Okay. It was just kind of like that. Zero romance. It went from like, you know, dreamy. Aaron was the romantic one. So it went from like dreamy romance city to like me being like, hey, do you want to get married? Yeah, that'd be good. Okay, great. Okay, great. The wedding is on. Carrie's family is supportive. Aaron's family, not so much. To give you an idea of like the wedding itself, as Aaron was walking down the aisle, his grandma basically yelled, it's not too late to turn back now. So that was kind of the general sentiment. (laughs) And Aaron was mortified. Aaron was mortified. And I can remember I wasn't paying attention to my phone, but I had a text from him later that basically said, like, we need to wrap up the wedding as soon as possible and get out. And so that night we were just like, you know, wrap up the wedding, 
kind of be done. And we got to our hotel, which again, we're 19. So it was like this local, like small hotel. Oh, and, and you're 19. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're like, how many Dr. Peppers do you want, babe? I know that's, no, that was exactly it. We didn't have some wild, sexy, like, you know, uh, wedding you night. We just had prom. Yeah. <laughs> We just had prom, just had home, homecoming. And I'm not kidding you when I say our wedding night was spent crying, sitting on our bed, eating the snacks from our wedding because we were so overwhelmed. Like that was our wedding night. <laughs> and major cringe, but also like it sucked. It sucked. It sucked. And I just remember Aaron saying like, I just want to be different than them. I don't want to treat people like this. I want to grow beyond this. And he wanted so badly. He wanted so badly to be something different and to create a world in which he felt like he was giving back and doing something, you know, that, that had meaningful impact on the world. Aaron and I had the best relationship. We became the same person. There was nothing beyond that. (laughs) I like... I could go on forever about Aaron. I could go on forever about our relationship. I kicked his ass at Halo, but thanks to him because he taught me. We were your average couple. We watched The Office on repeat every single day and, you know, called it a personality trait, just like everybody else on the face of this earth. Eventually, he got me onto John Mayer, but I still refused to listen to Daughters. We were married for 13 years. We had sort of a bucket list of things we wanted to do. We both graduated college. We worked at the same companies for like almost the entirety of our marriage. We were just, you know, beyond like these weird pockets of our life that are kind of dark. We really had the brightest, most magical life and relationship. I mean, we traveled, we lived a pretty mundane, privileged, typical life. We would go to Starbucks every morning. We had our basic Starbucks orders. And, you know, that was it. And I think, like, when we think about, like, what a good life is, and I just, I don't know, there's so much emphasis on, like, what's the biggest thing? Like, blah, blah, blah. And truly, like, the beauty of life, the joy of life, all the best stuff in life is in just the absolute mundane. Nothing more glorious. Nothing. Nothing Nothing more glorious than a nice, quiet life than knowing yeah. someone's Starbucks order than yep. than being you know in a routine so predictable you could set a watch to it it's, yes that is to me what a good life is what a good marriage is we'll be right back Carrie and Aaron have been happily married for eight years now. They've crossed items off their bucket lists. They just got back from an amazing trip to Italy. And they're ready to start trying to have a baby. It's August 2018, and Carrie is feeling like crap. So she pees on a stick. She sees two lines. She's pregnant. And she knows exactly how to tell Aaron. I had grand plans and I had ordered a Bill Nye onesie and a matching Bill Nye shirt for Aaron. 
I was too excited and I couldn't wait. So I ended up going to Target and I just got a bunch of baby shit. I don't even know what I got. And then I came back and he, poor Aaron, he was like sick with the flu, but I was just too excited. I just couldn't wait. <laughs> and I was like, Aaron. And I handed him all this stuff and a card that said he was going to be a dad. And I remember he had the flu and he just started bawling, but like he had the flu. So it was like a double whammy of like, he couldn't breathe. And he had just like snot running down his face. When it comes time to tell Carrie's parents, her mom is once again on it. My mom sobbed. And then she was like, I knew it. And she goes out to the car and brings in a bunch of baby stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And So that just, again, speaks to my mom and like her level of awareness and next level momery. Everyone is so excited about the baby that when Carrie's 20-week ultrasound rolls around, the whole dang family goes to the appointment. Carrie, Aaron, Carrie's parents, Carrie's sister. We all show up full force. My dad loves photography. So he had like this full photography camera set up. Aaron's there. I'm there. Mom's there. We took the day off of work. Mom had her tea with her. She had her phone camera ready to go. We were all amped, excited. And funny enough, and my mom always talked about this. We were sitting out there and I remember my mom before we went in saying, I wonder what they do when they have bad news to give to somebody, like what it's like to sit in the office and if they direct somebody to a different room or like, it's just got to be really hard. Like she was just kind of thinking out loud about like what that would be like. You know, we're all excited and we're like, oh, it's a girl and we're yay, Sloan. And we knew it was going to be Sloan. And so we're like, it's Sloan, it's Sloan. And then the tech was wonderful, but her energy shifted a little bit. And she said, oh, it looks like Sloan might have a cleft lip. And we're like, okay. And then I remember Aaron kind of looked at me. And I mean, Aaron and I could just tell, you know, the energy shifts. And she got quieter. She's like, you know, it looks like Sloan has club feet. And we're like, okay, okay. And then she got quieter and she's like, you know, it looks like there could be brain abnormalities. And I remember my mom and my dad like slowly put down the camera My mom and dad were really quiet and everybody's watching me, of course, the pregnant lady, which I hated. So it's just like, can somebody look somewhere else? Please disappear now. Yeah, exactly. I was like, I just would like to sink into the floor. There are some moments in your life that give you a clear before and after. Moments that represent a shift in your reality. And this is one of those moments. Before this appointment, this series of announcements, Carrie's pregnancy was typical. Her married life, her family life, was shaping up to meet her expectations. And now, in front of everyone they love, those expectations need to shift dramatically and forever. Aaron was great. He was just kind of holding my hand, standing there. He's like, okay, okay. And so I was holding it all together. But they decided to take my blood pressure. They take my blood pressure and it has skyrocketed. And she says something like, oh, honey, your blood pressure. And then, of course, I lose my shit. I break down and then everybody comes rolling out and I'm just sobbing. And mom and dad stayed in the room. Aaron stepped out. He hugs me. And then our doctor, the OB was wonderful. He was just the most intense, weird guy. And I love him for it. He came by. He slaps me on the back. This is honestly what I needed. I needed to be treated like I wasn't some like gentle human that was going to break. I needed somebody to come slap me on the back and tell me we're going to do this. And so he came, he slapped me on the back and he says, 
I've seen a lot of shitheads and you two aren't shitheads. You've got this. And he walks off. <laughs> and I was, I looked at him and I was like, yeah, we're not shitheads. They're not shitheads. They can do this. From the day of that 20-week ultrasound until the day Sloan is born, Carrie sees her maternal fetal medicine specialist twice a week. They have decisions to make, like where to deliver Sloan. Do they do it at their local hospital? Do they do it at the big university hospital, which has a children's hospital nearby that specializes in medically complex kids? And there's just so much more. We're just thrown into this whole new world, genetic testing, genetic planning, people talking about different syndromes, you know, all the things. And then the rest of my pregnancy is like that. It's just kind of surreal. You know, people talk about a lot of anxiety. At that point, I just, I don't know if I was disconnected or desensitized, but I was like, we're just in this and we're doing this. And I kind of just went with it. I never had a ton of anxiety. I was just like, Sloan's coming and Sloan's coming and we're going to do it. Yeah. And there's also like, I don't know, there's just something to like crisis mode where it's like, okay, well, here we are. Exactly. And I, I think that like, if you've never been in that level of crisis mode, it's hard to understand that because it's like, yeah, you just do it. You're like, here we are, we have to do this and we have no choice. And this is it. And it's a human. We're talking about a human that's going to come out on the other side. Like we can't let this human down. He's there every step of the way. He's at every appointment. He's planning everything. He's doing everything. He's there for me every single day. I was on bed rest the last two weeks. Sloan's heart rate was starting to look odd, but it wasn't enough to deliver her, but I was getting monitored almost every day at that point. And Aaron was just with me all the time. I have this great picture (laughs) of Aaron where one day I was in bed and I was like, I hate this. I just remember Aaron walked in and I was like, this is the literal worst. I hate every minute of it. I never want to be pregnant again. And I just went on forever. And I was like, I feel ugly. I feel terrible. And this just speaks to Aaron. But he (laughs) makes me cry. But he was like, being Aaron, he like screamed. He's like, Carrie. And he like jumped behind me in bed because I was like on bed rest. And he squeezed me so tight. And he was like, look. And he pulled out his phone. He started taking selfies of us. (laughs) And he was like, you look great. And he's like, just think, you have another human inside of you that's going to pop out in a week. Like, give yourself a break, dude. And he was, again, treating me like a human, not like I was some gentle creature that was going to, you know, like, die at any moment. After two weeks of bed rest, Carrie realizes one day that she can't feel Sloan anymore. She's just not moving around in there. This is... Scary, and Carrie rushes to see her doctor and learns that Sloan's heart rate is tanking, and they need to do an emergency C-section right now. Carrie calls her mom, her dad, and just like at that 20-week ultrasound, the whole family starts rolling in to help. Carrie doesn't remember the actual birth. Doctors weren't able to get her numb enough to do the C-section while she was lucid, so they had to put her under general anesthesia. But Aaron was there, and afterward he catches Carrie up on what's happening with their daughter. And they pulled Sloan out, and she wasn't breathing. They had to intubate her, so they called the NICU team down. They were unsuccessful the first five times, and Aaron was 
watching all of this go down. And then on the fifth time, they were able to intubate Sloan. And it was very apparent when Sloan was born, there was a lot more going on than we ever imagined or knew from like ultrasounds. And the funny part is I told Aaron, we made an agreement that if something happens with Sloan, he goes with Sloan no matter what um, and not to worry about me. And I told him no matter what happens that he needs to take pictures. And so poor Aaron, love him dearly. He is standing there crying as they're trying to intimate Sloan, taking pictures with my camera because he, and when somebody asked him what he's doing, he's like, I promised Gary, I would take pictures. Carrie laughs about it now because when traumatic, awful things happen, laughing about it even morbidly can be healing. It can be the only way that you can tell a story. But back to the serious stuff, the medical team gets Sloan intubated so that she's breathing with help. They decide her chances at survival will be better if she takes a life flight to that specialized children's hospital. And Carrie is about to experience a surreal moment most moms will never have. Meeting her little girl, saying hello, and saying goodbye, without knowing if it's a see you soon farewell or a goodbye for good. It's hard to talk about, but a lot of people get to deliver their babies and they get like, you know, childbirth, no matter what, is not like we see the influencers on Instagram portray it to be. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> um, but with that said, people still get the chance after they go through all of it to hold their baby as a human in a bed without anything. And for me, she looked like this alien that just like, rolled in, covered, covered in lights and cords and stuff. And, you know, we were told she may not survive the life flight, so that might be the only time I ever touch her or see her. And it was just kind of like, bye. Like, there she was, this alien baby child that came out in the most traumatic way that I am saying goodbye to, and nothing is happy. Like, nothing's happy. It's not like... Oh, wow, everybody's crying tears of joy because baby Sloan is here. Everybody is crying tears of terror because Sloan is barely alive and they're about to take her to a hospital where who knows what's going to happen next. I mean, I know this is super graphic, but I was touching Sloan's hand and throwing up into a bag as I was coming out of the sedation. Like, it was like, like none of it was pretty. My mom's crying because she's terrified. My doctor is talking to Aaron about next plans. Aaron was told, don't get on the helicopter because if Sloan dies, you shouldn't be there to see that. It's going to be hard. Like, I mean, we're having these conversations, not like, what's her name? She's seven pounds, 11 ounces. It was like, if she dies, we need to be prepared for this. Okay. Instead of riding in the helicopter with Sloan, Aaron goes with Carrie's dad to meet his new daughter at the children's hospital. And Carrie's mom stays with her. And she would get me up every day. I would be in my bed asleep and all of a sudden I would hear, Carrie, Carrie. And she would wait till doctors left because doctors are wonderful but may not push you as hard as you can be pushed, in my mom's opinion. <laughs> and so my mom would wait until the doctors left and then she would be towering over me and she'd be like, Carrie, 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 
Carrie, just get up and walk. Just walk two feet, walk two feet. You can do it. Just walk two feet. And so I'd be like, okay, okay. So I would get up and I would walk two feet and then I would sit down and she'd be like, good job. You did it. Good job. And she would push me, push me, push me. And I swear that's the reason I got out of there because I remember the doctor saying like, wow, you got out so fast. I'm like, yeah, because my mom was in here and she wouldn't give me a freaking break. (laughs) She kept making me walk. Sloan is in the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit, for three months. She's a medically complex little human. She undergoes surgery for a tracheotomy. She has a G-tube put in so food can go straight to her tummy. She has clubbed feet, a cleft palate, and a cleft lip. She's eventually diagnosed with a rare syndrome called CHARGE. Every letter, the C, the H, the A, the R, the G, the E, stands for another health problem another birth defect. They're big, hard to understand terms, and we're not going to list them all. There's something else you need to know about CHARGE syndrome. It's one of the leading causes of deaf blindness in infants, which is another pair of complexities for Sloan. She is deaf, and she is blind. Carrie and Aaron knew that Sloan would have some brain abnormalities, but they weren't prepared for all of these things. And even though many of us recognize people who are blind and deaf and have cognitive disabilities can live wonderful lives, it's also very natural for this news to hit a new parent hard. Because it's a lot for two young parents to take in. Not just what is happening with Sloan now, but the anxiety of what could happen, what she could endure, what life could be like for her. Well, the way that you're presented with information whether you're in the NICU or when you meet with medical professionals, sometimes it can be seen as like bad news. I don't really know how else to put it. Like, it's just like, this is the end. Your daughter's blind. Mm -hmm. And then that's how you receive it. And being a seeing, hearing person, I don't know what that looks like. So for me, I'm like blind. She's going to live a life of dark, petulant, misery, you know, like that's, that's like immediately where my mind goes. And that is just like ableism manifested right there. You know, like, because if you meet Sloan, honestly, Sloan's quality of life after all the shit we've been through is the best out of all of us. Like Mm. there's no question. Just as Carrie and Aaron are adjusting to life, both as new parents and new parents to a medically complex child. Sloan ends up in the hospital with RSV, and it's really life-threatening at the time for her because her airway is so complicated. There's so much going on. She's still so, like, high risk in general. RSV is a pretty common virus. The symptoms are like a cold. Your nose runs, you get a cough, you lose your appetite. Almost every child will have an RSV infection by the time they're two. The thing is, RSV can be very dangerous for newborns. And for medically complex immunocompromised babies like Sloan, it's even more dangerous. So for the second time in her very short life, Sloan is life-flighted to the children's hospital, right back where she started. A few days into Sloan's stay in the PICU, that's the pediatric intensive care unit, Carrie and Aaron also get sick, so they're not able to visit her. And just like the last time they were all in this situation, Carrie's mom and dad step in to help. They take time off work. They do all the meetings with the doctors. And once Carrie gets better, she's able to visit Sloan and thank her parents again for their help during this latest crisis. 
I met my mom and dad for lunch that day um, at a local bakery down in Salt Lake before they came back home from seeing Sloan and I kind of took over the shift. And I remember crying and I like held my mom's hand and I was like, I'm just so lucky to have you as a mom. <laughs> and I was like, I would trade you for anything in the world. You're my best bud. And I just went on forever and ever and ever. And I thanked her and my dad for being there. And then my mom cried and she was like, this was the best two days I got to spend with Sloan. Carrie's mom gets it. You just got to treasure the good times for as long as they last. I'm not sure if you remember from the very top of this episode, but decades before her granddaughter arrived, Carrie's mom held another baby, Haley, Carrie's older sister, the one who died just one day after being born. Having Haley and losing her prompted Carrie's parents to make the biggest moves of their lives out of a small-minded, small town and into a world where they could be their true selves, where they could raise the children who would become their true selves and have children who could become their true selves. Haley's life was short and powerful and not at all what they were expecting or wanting. Without Haley, there's no Carrie and there's no Sloan. And here, 34 years after her birth and death, Haley's niece, Sloan, is a small and powerful force for change in her own family of origin. There's no way of knowing how long Sloan will live or what her life will be like, but her presence is absolutely transforming the lives of the people who love her, sending out ripples of change far bigger than anyone can possibly know just yet. I'm Nora McInerney, and this has been Terrible. Thanks for asking. Our production team is Beth Perlman, Marcel Malikibu, Jordan Turgeon, Jacob Maldonado-Medina, and myself, Nora McInerney. Our theme music is by Joffrey Lamar Wilson. We are a production of APM, American Public Media. Uh, I recorded this in my closet. Um, We'll be back next week. What else do you need to know? Oh, if you want, um, we make this podcast. It's always going to be free. Do not worry. Do not fret, my little pet. The podcast is still free. It costs you zero dollars. There's, there's a lot of ways to support our show. You're doing it right now by listening. If you support our advertisers, like with our kids and stuff, that helps. Telling people about the podcast, um, being here. But if you want to support us financially, um, God, this is like, I feel like I'm asking my dad for money. If you'd like to, look, you've supported me in a lot of ways, but if you'd like to take the next step and do it financially, um, he did not. FYI, he really turned down that pitch. I was like, okay. So if you'd like to support the podcast, not me, specifically financially, you can go to ttfa.org slash premium. We are making uh, some extra episodes for premium subscribers. We make ad-free episodes and um, other stuff. Oh, and also you can call us with questions, comments, complaints, um, compliments. 612-568-4441. 612-568-4441. Okay, bye.